everyone. I'm Jen Garrett and welcome to the Move the Ball podcast. On this podcast, we are going to talk about how to succeed in business and in life by putting winning strategies into practice to help you advance faster. So if you're looking to move forward and reach that next level of greatness, then you are in the right place. Now get ready. Let's suit up, show up and move the ball. Hey everyone, Jen Garrett here. It's so great to be back with you on another episode of Move the Ball. Today, inside the huddle with us and ready to help us to move the ball is Mr. Mike Pereira. Mike has been involved in sports officiating for many decades, is the former vice president of officiating for the National Football League, and spent a total of 14 years officiating for the league. Now, Mike is currently a rules analyst for Fox Sports for both NFL and collegiate football games. Mike was named Sports Illustrated Sports Media Person of the Year in 2010 for his groundbreaking impact on sports television. Mike, welcome to the show. Jennifer, it's uh, truly great to be with you. Well, thanks so much for being here with us today. I've really been looking forward to this conversation as you have some very interesting perspectives that I've really been wanting to share with my listeners for some time. So again, thank you for being with us today. And as the date was approaching for our chat, I was thinking about how there were so many places that I could kick off our conversation. And I went back and forth. But what I want to do is start off the same way that you start off in your book after further review and in that book you share a story about something your dad said to you which you say has defined your life and i enjoyed reading about that story your dad used the phrase you're not worth the quarter it takes to buy a coke can you share with everyone listening the story around that and how that has influenced you and your life it's interesting because basically i grew up as a baseball player that was my strong sport i was too small really to play football in high school or really any level so baseball was my sport my dad probably went to every game that i ever played to tell you the truth excepting for some in alaska when i played summer baseball up there but at a game when i was like 14 years old it was an american legion game in lodi california in the middle of the summer 105 degrees in Central California. And I was playing first base at the time and I went 0 for 4 and made two errors. And I was so thirsty at the end of the game. I mean, you're talking back in around 1964, 65, that all I wanted to do after the game is, game had ended and after my splendid performance, I went to my dad and asked him to buy me a Coke. He looked right down at me and said, you know, you're not worth the quarter it takes to buy a Coke. At that very moment, it didn't have a great impact on me. It had an impact on my mother, who kind of kicked him in the shins. On me, it didn't really have an impact until later on. Later on in life, it, the, the phrase came back to me. And as I was going through the years of my early 20s and even late teens, then it struck me that his basic statement there kind of drove me to try to find something to prove that I was worth the 25 cents. And that's how long it was ago that 25 cents could buy a Coke. But it really did shape my life and that I was always driving to find this, whatever it might be, to be able to say to my dad, oh, yes, I am. And that's really what started a campaign and shaped my life for basically ever. Wow, that's a great story. And, and now your dad was an official as well. And you waited until he retired to officiate at the collegiate level where you say you had your best times. Why were they your best times? And could you share a story or two that are really memorable and stood out in your mind and a crazy time too, if you will? 
It was different then, Jennifer. And again, we're talking about college football. I went through the normal progression. I started doing Pop Warner football out here in California. And and, uh, that was my first taste of it. Somebody convinced me to do it. I really didn't have a desire to, but when I when I found out I could, on a Sunday, make $30 cash, that drove me into officiating because I basically didn't have any money. And then I progressed from youth football with parents just yelling and screaming at me. And for some insane reason, I loved that, to sophomore and freshman high school football, to high school, to junior college, to small college, and then to the four-year college level in the West Coast, the, the PCAA, it was called at the time, um, and then went to the WAC officiating was really fun then. You looked forward to the whole entire experience. We used to call it Football Friday, and especially in the WAC. Football Friday, that meant that you, have to be, you had to be ready to tee off at noon on Friday to play golf on Friday afternoon. And then you had a big dinner and sometimes a couple cocktails on Friday night. Then you worked your game on Saturday, and then you had a dinner afterwards and it was all in fun and everybody went home. There wasn't nearly the accountability that there is now. My take on that is a little bit different because the accountability, while it seems good, is not necessarily good. Because when everything you do on a football field, and this is true now in college football and certainly in the NFL, everything you do is evaluated. Every call you make is evaluated. Every call you don't make is evaluated. It's a different concept. Basically, what it does is it drives officiating into a science. It's all based on data. It says you should call this and call this all the time. It says you shouldn't call this and you should never call this. And so you officiate basically to a set of data as opposed to back in my day when you officiated it for the good of the game. I mean, it was an art form. That may sound strange, but it was. You on the field just knew what you should call and what you shouldn't call to keep the game flowing. And if it wasn't anything that related to player safety and it didn't create an advantage on the field, you didn't call it. And so, therefore, you officiated for the good of the game, and I think officiating was probably better for it at that time. It was just more fun back in the olden days. Were there any lessons that you learned from your college officiating career that helped you to grow as a person, as a professional, and to continue to be successful? Well, I think the further that you go and you you first get this in college, you learn how to handle pressure. I read one time where Billie Jean King said, pressure is a privilege. And that stuck with me, and I agree with that statement. The further you went into officiating, the further you were put under pressure. And those that succeed know how to handle that pressure. Those that don't succeed don't know how to handle that pressure. And the pressure comes from the 60,000 people that may be sitting in the stands. The pressure may be coming, you know, from that play when it's fourth and two with eight seconds to go in the game and the team is down by four. And the thoughts that are running through your mind prior to the play about what you have to look for, what you do is you take that pressure and you learn how to basically release it from yourself so that you can make logical decisions, forgetting about that pressure, putting pressure aside. And that's true in everyday life. I think pressure causes us to react in a reckless way. 
you can't afford to do that in football when you're on the field, whether you're a player or you're an official. And the same way in life, you have to take something where you would expect your blood pressure to go to 150 over 90, and you need to find a place in your mind where you can bring it back down to 120 over 80. That's a life lesson that you get from officiating. Jennifer, that even goes back to my first day that I stepped on the field and in East Palo Alto at a Pop Warner football game and the parents were screaming at me. In a way then, I felt like it was a privilege, that it was a privilege to be out there. And I learned that those that normally put the pressure on you know a lot less than you do. And so you can basically internalize that and make better decisions. Sure. Is there anything that you would share with our listeners on how they can kind of keep their mindset right? Is there anything that you would tell yourself or that you would do to handle that pressure? I've always said in your, whether it's your occupation or whether it's your avocation or whether it's your passion, because everybody has to have a passion. Mine happened to be officiating. Um, you need to become an expert. I mean, you need to know the ins and outs. You need to constantly continue to learn. You need to constantly continue to read. You need to become that person that knows more than anybody who's trying to criticize you. And I always felt that way in officiating. I, I believe I got to a point. I'm not sure that I'm still at that point now as you, as you move on in years. But there wasn't anybody that could beat me in my prime when it came to knowledge of rules. If you become fully versed in whatever it is you're doing, the company that you work for, the industry that you work for, if you become fully versed in that, then I think your confidence level explodes. And I, I think that's a great thing. No, I completely agree with that. And you talk about in your book, confidence, communication, conflict resolution are things that are important on the field. Those are also important off the field in business and in life. And so in your experience, what other uh, elements do you think, what would you add to this list that are important not only in officiating, but also in being successful beyond the game? Yeah, well, call it the it factor. And it really came from when I went to a college scrimmage with a guy named Gerald Austin, who was the head of the officials for the um, Conference USA. And he was in a press box watching a spring football game. He was going to hire a couple officials. And their, their work guy said, Joe, what are you looking at? And what are you looking for? And his comment was, I don't know. Are, aren't we looking for the guy that's got the it factor? And, and he said, well, what's the it factor? I said, I don't know. I said, but we look at a guy. I don't care if he calls pass interference or he doesn't. I just care about the fact. I just want to look to see how he handles himself. I can teach them what to call on the field, but I can't teach that innate ability of being able to communicate with both players and coaches. I can't teach that confidence that when you see him standing there, you know he's got it. You could also go, and I always talked about officiating, we do not spend enough time in conflict resolution. And yet, we're faced with it all the time. Um, we're faced with Coaches yelling at us with players yelling at each other. How do we diffuse that? How do we diffuse that in everyday life? How do we diffuse that in business? And that's one of the key words that I use in officiating. You know what we do? We listen. Communication is a skill. I mean, and that's probably why I went from a line judge to a referee so quickly, because that was a skill that I did have. Some people may call it BS, 
if they want to call it BS, fine. But if you can communicate, and I think I did a good job on that in the field as a referee with coaches and players, if you can communicate, you know what comes from that? Confidence. Well, I'm glad you bring that up because you talk about listening. And I think this is very important also outside of the football context in the business world. People too often don't listen. They don't take the time to listen. They have their position and they want to just communicate what their position is. And they don't take the time to listen to the other people that they're working with, that they're interacting with to understand the other perspectives to really talk through whatever it is they're working through. It's really about, this is what I think. And I, wa I want to tell you what I think. And they're not open to listening to the other side. Yeah. And I think, Jim, that's part of being an expert. You have to listen to other people's opinion because you know what? You might learn something. <laughs> I mean, I always say that. Huh? You listen, you learn. Absolutely. Now, as you, you went from collegiate football to the NFL, what was the biggest difference, not rules-wise or the way the game is played, but culturally, what was the biggest difference for you that you noticed? Everything basically changed because you went from, I don't know, kind of an unknown to a known. I mean, when people found out that you were an NFL official, they wanted to talk to you. There was a fascination with you being on the field and people almost could get down on the field with you. I mean, the questions are always, well, tell me what it's like. Do the players really get on each other? What are they saying? How violent really is it when you're that close to the field? There was this fascination that almost made you like a star. Something you talk about in your book is that people, including officials, they make mistakes. For those of us who are listening, who are football fans, I'm sure all of them can remember a time when a wrong call was made or in a game-changing call or a critical missed call at the end of the game. Can you talk about a time where you personally might have got the call wrong? Doesn't have to be in the NFL, but just in your officiating career. And, and how did you handle that? What did you do? Well, you know, if you're an official, and especially when you get to the level of the NFL, you care so much, you try so hard that you never remember your good calls, but you forever remember your bad calls. It's so important to you. And you've reached that level where you, you want to be so good that when you make a bad call, it's devastating. And for me, it was my one and only playoff game um, because I only was on the field for two years before they moved me into the office and made me a supervisor. Um, but for me, it was a playoff game, a division game. The, the Broncos played the Chiefs, went to Kansas City and played in Kansas City against the Chiefs. And early in the game, you know, I was a side judge. And in the most simple down and up where the receiver 10 yards downfield got chucked out of bounds, basically, and illegally because it was beyond, well beyond five yards. And the quarterback was still in the pocket. And I don't think there could be an easier illegal contact call that an official could have made. And I choked. You could use every term in the world, swallowed the olive, froze. I didn't call it. And passing it up incomplete. I was on the Denver sidelines. It was Denver was on offense. Mike Shanahan started screaming at me shortly after the play ended. It wasn't long before I realized, yeah, that I did choke. And of course, I had to be on Denver sidelines. So I, Mike Shanahan yelled at me kind of like I've never been yelled before. And I had to sit there and take it because I knew he was right. And I did go up to him at some point and say, you're right. I missed that, missed it badly, but I will never forget that. 
And the reason I ask this question is because we all have had times in our lives that we remember where we made the wrong call on something. And you have to emotionally bounce back from that and keep going. So what did you do or how did you get your head back in the game? I mean, you knew that you had missed that call, but there was still plenty of game to go. So how did you bounce back to stay focused and not let yourself be beat yourself up over missing that call? Well, I did beat myself up over a couple of plays, but then then you have to settle back into your routine. I mean, and there is a routine that you have to do every single play. And from my position, it was you have to count the defense. You have to make sure that they have 11 players. You have to track who's coming on, who's coming off. And then once you confirm that there are 11 players, then you have to look at the formation and you have to find your guy, your guy that you're responsible for. And you also have to look, okay, the ball's at the 26, the illegal contact zone's at the 31. You have this routine that you have to go through. And once you get yourself back into that routine, then you forget about it. In the end of that particular game, Kansas City had the ball on a fourth down play. Uh, They were trailing by four or whatever, and they threw a pass in the corner of the end zone near the sideline. Tony Gonzalez went up to catch it for the go-ahead touchdown, possessed it, got hit, and then landed near the line, part of his body inbounds, part of his body out of bounds. What hit first? Was it a force out, which was a rule back then? And here is side judge 77, me, standing at the corner of the end zone, looking down the line toward my head linesman, who uh, was a veteran guy, and having to make that decision, I kind of looked at him and he kind of shrugged his shoulders and I said, incomplete. And the place, of course, in Kansas City erupted because we were in Kansas City. And now I had ended up making the call, decided the outcome of the game. And as we're running off the field, the supervisor official, Jerry Seaman, radioed down to somebody to grab me as I was running off the field and to tell me that that was a great call. And so all of a sudden, the bad call that I made early, the concern that I had missed the game deciding call when I got the confirmation from my boss that it was a great call, man, you should have seen my chest. I mean, it exploded. (laughs) It uh, It was so far out. And so my negative from my very last game early on turned out to be a positive because I was able to put it aside and make the right decision in an even bigger call in that same game. And to this day, Mike Shanahan and I, when we're together, we always laugh about that. That's a great story. Thank you for sharing that. Now, you've interacted with a lot of great NFL players and coaches over the years. Can you name a couple of players and coaches that really stand out in your mind as great leaders and tell us what it is about them that makes them so great and separates them from the rest? Uh, Let's go to coaches because um, obviously I dealt with 32 of them. And I, I think when I look back at what makes them great leaders, one of my favorites would be Bill Belichick and the relationship that we had because he was never a coach tried to work me. I mean, often, you know, when people are talking, when coaches are talking, they're trying to work you. They're trying to work you for a future call. They're trying to work you for a future game. Bill Belichick was the consummate straight shooter. I mean, when he called me and he had a question 
and I would answer the question. If, if he agreed with my answer, it was fine. If he disagreed with my answer, there was an argument. There was not an argument. He would just say, well, we agree to disagree. This is how I see the act or how I see the play. And I think that reflected really the way that he coached. I mean, it was without question, just a straight shooter. When I think of a coach that really cared about me, which to me would have reflected how he cared about his players. I mean, I'm thinking back of Bill Cower, who used to call me every once in a while just to ask me how I was doing, especially after a tough weekend where the officials, we were getting a lot of flack. And he wasn't working me. I mean, he truly cared. I so greatly respected him for that. He really didn't have a lot of interaction with the players, believe it or not. He started out where there was a 25-second play clock between plays. Everybody had to do things. They had to get in the huddle, and then it went to a 40-second play clock, but it was still the same, ultimately the same time between plays, the interaction between players and, and officials. There's just not a lot there. Got it. And I appreciate you sharing both Bill Belichick and uh, and Bill Cower. Uh, one thing that uh, I like that you talked about, Bill, was Bill's focusing on relationships, right? It was about caring about who you were. And I think as leaders in the business world, it's important for us to remember that it's not just about business. It's about maintaining relationships and caring and showing compassion for people. And too oftentimes people forget about that human element. It's just about getting down to business and go, 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 hustle, hustle, grind, grind. But people are people at the end of the day. And so we need to not forget that we need to make sure that we're taking care of our people, checking on our people and maintaining relationships and treating people as people first, then business second. So true. So there's so many things that uh, just in the interest of time, there's a lot of things in your book that I would love to talk about. But what I'm going to let you do is tell people how they can get a copy of After Further Review. I mean, you talk about some great uh, plays that changed NFL history, rule changes in the game. Where can people find the book? And I highly recommend that those listening pick up a copy and read it. Well, you can go on Amazon and get it. This has been about three years now, I think, or maybe a little bit more. I was having a golf tournament and I thought, well, I wonder if I still have enough books left, you know, that, that I could give them as a tea prize to 120 players. And so I called the publishers and they put me in touch with the warehouse that has all the books. And the guy answered the phone and I told him who I was. And I said, you know, I just am doing this golf tournament. Can, can you tell me how many books I might have left? I got 120 players. And his response was, well, which palette do you want me to count? And I said, okay, I get it. I got plenty of books left. So my book actually was discounted before it even got published, but because um, Amazon in their pre-sale, but that's where you can uh, get it. And I, and I do put a lot of stuff. It's for the football fan. I mean, the football fan will be the one to um, appreciate it, but it also takes you through a life like mine, you know, that has had its struggles, whether it was my father and his um, comment to me or whether some medical situations that I've been through that had to, I had to bounce back from. It's, uh, it was fun to write. Would I do it again? No, but it was fun. Well, I'm glad you wrote. I, I really enjoyed reading it. I'm just being familiar with the football world for so long. I remember a lot of the games that you talk about and then the calls and plays and rule changes. And, but there was a lot of that of your story that I did not know. So it was great just to learn more about you through reading it as well. 
So I will also go check it out for those football fans. It's a great book on Amazon. We'll put a link to it in the show notes as well. And Mike, what I want to do now is switch gears because I think it's important that we aren't just focused on our own successes and what we do, but I think it's important to help other people do great things too. And in my Move the Ball book, I have a chapter on this called Don't Just Be a Player. And you are involved in a number of organizations, including being the president, CEO, and on the board of directors for an organization called Battlefield to Ballfields. And so tell us more about how that came to be and what the organization's mission is. Came to be because um, I recognized two things and um, two ongoing issues in the times that we're in. And one is the lack of opportunity for many of our veterans that are returning back into civilian life with really nothing to do. And as a recent guy that we are working with now, he said to me, you know, the military teaches you how to fight, teaches you how to be a soldier. It doesn't teach you how to survive in civilian life after you're done. And so I saw veterans that were struggling and then, and then there is a tremendous shortage of officials around the country, a tremendous shortage. And it's everywhere. It's, uh, it's every state. It's practically every sport. I mean, nobody is signing up to officiate anymore or very few people are signing up to officiate because of the number one reason is the abuse and sportsmanship that you take with parents being the number one category, by the way. Um, But the abuse that you take from parents and coaches and players, and you do it on the high school level for a minimal amount of money. And so the average age of officials has gone up. They can't fill all the slots. And so high school games are being played on Saturdays and Thursdays and it's really a big concern. So I thought on a long drive to Oregon where I clear my head, I thought about the fact that, wow, why can't we get these veterans and why can't we get them into officiating? I mean, when you think about the things that I talked about earlier, confidence, commitment, courage, communication, all of those things that make the good official that it factor, one would assume that a soldier would fit in well in that and could handle that stuff. And so I thought, could we marry the two together and get more officials and give some of our veterans something to do, let them lead again. And so I put together all in this one long drive, the idea of battlefields to ball fields, where we would take service members off of the battlefield and we put them on the ball field. Not to discount what I do because I like what I do, but it's meaningless. I mean, did I make life better? No, I didn't. And so therefore, when I started to go through the concept of battlefields to ball fields, could that be my life's work? Could that be something that helped this world that potentially could make a difference? I made a difference in Hector Tarango's life from down by Riverside, California, who had PTSD, still has PTSD. But he had it horribly bad, and he wouldn't even leave the house. He had served three tours in the Middle East. He came back, no wife. His son disowned him. No house held up in some rental property. And if Hector was in the Army, a friend of his who was a Navy guy was trying to get him out of the house, and he wouldn't do it. Hector was an athlete in high school. And his friend said, hey, let's become an official. They've got a program called Battlefields to Ballfields. And And it's run by this Mike Pereira and Hector's, who's Mike Pereira? He said, well, he's this guy on Fox and let's do it. And Hector said, no, no, but he got him out of the house. 
and he got him onto a field, onto a camp in Southern California, and I was there. And he listened to the instructors, and then he went out doing nothing, knowing nothing. And it was a seven-on-seven summer league, and he stepped out in that field, and he, when I met him before the game, his hand was wet. He was so nervous. And he said, I don't want to fail. I just don't want to fail. And I said, this is not pass-fail, Hecker. This is just kind of learning what to do. He went through the process, and in that one scrimmage, he loved it. He loved it. And now he's officiating football. He's officiating basketball. And if you talk to him on the phone, you'd say, this guy never could have been depressed. And it's what can happen when you give people the opportunity to do something. When you give them the opportunity to lead. And officiating is that you're leading. You're leading young people. Sure. Wow. Powerful story. And I think it's a great organization. I know there's a number of veterans who are listeners to the show. And I know we all know people who are veterans too. So for everyone listening, if you're interested in being a part of uh, this program, or if you know someone who you think would be, we're going to have the website, the Battlefields to Ballfields website in the show notes, please pass it on. It's a great program. And Mike, you're doing tremendous things to really make an impact and, and do something meaningful through this organization. So what I want to do now is I want to do my two-minute drill, which is seven questions, just fun questions. Are you ready? I'm ready, I guess, but go ahead. (laughs) We're just going to roll with it. What's your favorite food? Chinese food. Love it. Okay. What's your favorite movie? One that you probably never heard of. It's called Paint Your Wagon. It's an old Western with Lee Marvin and Clint Eastwood, which I probably have seen maybe 50 times because in my college days, and that's when it was, we used to sneak into the Century Theater. Okay, I'll have to check it out. Uh, What's your favorite sports team? I mean, I grew up a 49er fan. Uh, My dad was a 49er fan, and my mother used to tell me that I should be two years older, but your father wanted to pay off his 49er season tickets before he had another child. So I grew up a 49er fan. Okay. What is the best piece of advice that you've gotten from a coach or a mentor? Well, the one piece of advice that I got was to Red Cashin that taught me how to listen. He said, you must listen. You must listen before you talk. And that was uh, Red Cashin, who was another fantastic referee and human being. Great. And what's the best piece of advice that you would give someone? Well, same thing. But most importantly to me, I would say find a passion. I mean, everybody needs to have a passion and passion can be so many things to me turned out to be officiating. You know, I I mean, I like to play golf and I like to fish, but it's not my passion. Great advice. What's one thing that most people don't know about you? The fact that I never played football. I mean, here I rose to the level of the head of officiating in the National Football League, overseeing a bunch of players and never played the game. Okay, last question. If you could be any superhero, who would you be and why? I guess that would, that would depend on your definition of who you consider a superhero. I mean, um, maybe I would want to be Zorro. And, uh, and I could be Zorro so I could take my sword and I could slash a few rules out of the NFL rule book the pass interference rule that allows it to be reviewed and that makes it a 40-yard penalty, um, which I think is absurd. I think the college rule is better. So I want to be Zorro and let me slash the page of pass interference in the NFL rule book and then replace it with the page from the NCAA rule book and also make sure that it's not reviewable. Got it. Great answer. 
So uh, as we close our show, any lost thoughts for our listeners? It's interesting because, you know, we go through times and I'm not sure when this is going to air, but we're in this age when we did this of the coronavirus and the shelter in, in the words of my stepdaughter, you need to find the good in the bad, the good in the tough times. And, you know, you said it, talked about relationships and, and this is one we, everybody can take advantage of, you know, to take a breath give our earth a chance to take a breath. I mean, my car hardly leaves the garage, which is a good thing. Um, and, and to me, we just, we always have to kind of, I guess, and I'm, I'm better at talking about this than I am doing it, period, but we have to look inside every once in a while. And this is forcing us to do that. A doctor at the NFL told me one time when I said, man, all of a sudden I feel like, man, I'm not remembering the page of this particular rule as, as well as I used to. He said, your brain is like a sock drawer, young man. He said, sometimes you have to go through and throw out your old socks. And, and to me, what that did was just telling you to internalize a little bit. Would be amazed at what's going on in your head when you don't have any distractions. And that's how I came up with my life-changing event in battlefields to ball fields, you'd be surprised what's rolling around in there when there are zero distractions. And you can shed some things and you can add some things. And so if I was with some advice to anyone, it's to do that. That's great. I love that. Thanks so much for sharing that. Thank you again, Mike, for being on our show today. You've given us some great insights and really appreciate you being here with us. Happy to do it, Jen. Well, thanks everyone again for listening and we will talk to you next time. If you haven't already done so, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. Until next time, make sure that you suit up, that you show up and that you move the ball. Thank you for listening to Move the Ball. To see more about what I'm up to and how I can help you to move the ball, check out my website at www.jenniferagarrett.com. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss an episode. And also join the Move the Ball Facebook group for even more content and to be a part of the Move the Ball movement.